You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 49, Psalm 49. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, that's okay. Our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now. Just raise your hand or holler at them. We want to make sure everyone has an opportunity uh, to follow along. We have uh, made it our intention and it's really our design here at a Harvest Bible Chapel, soon to be Hope Church, uh, to uh, preach through the Bible, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line. That's our MO. That's the way that we uh, do things. And we just finished off a couple of weeks ago the first half of the Gospel of John and we look forward to restarting that in the, um, in the fall. And uh, sometimes a, a book as long as the Gospel of John, you got to sort of take two cracks at it. And thankfully John divides nicely into, uh, into two halves. That's a long book to try to preach through. Uh, some books are easier, easier to preach through than, uh, than others. A, a book like the book of Psalms is really challenging because there's 150 chapters in, uh, the, in the book of Psalms. And so about seven years ago, uh, I... Uh, preached on Psalm 1, and then the week after that, I preached on uh, Psalm 2, and uh, that was in the summer, we called it Summer in the Psalms, and then in that first July and August, I, I think I got to maybe Psalm 6 or Psalm 7, and then the next year in July, I started with Psalm 8, and now uh, we find ourselves in Psalm 49, so I've been doing this for about seven years, I think by, you know, uh, 20 29 or, or 39, we'll end up getting through all of, the, uh, all of the Psalms. I'm planning on being here. I'm not sure if you are, unless the Lord uh, returns. I'm committed to a long-term uh, preaching ministry here, going through uh, different uh, books of the Bible. Now, one of the reasons why we're committed to teaching the Bible in this way, and one of the reasons why we're committed to teaching the Psalms in this way is because if we were just to do sort of our trail mix, you know, pick out the chocolate chips approach to preaching with the book of Psalms, we would never read Psalm 49. Because it's not your classic Psalm 46, a mighty fortress is our God. It's not your Psalm 23, the Lord is my a shepherd. This is, sort of, this is sort of off the beaten path in terms of Psalms. Normally when we think about the book of Psalms, we think about worship. But Psalm 49, it's not so much about worship, it's about wisdom. In fact, this psalm is less about praise and sounds more like the book of Proverbs. This is like a teaching psalm. It, it's, it's a piece of music. It says right at the very beginning that it's written to the choir master who would have been intended to uh, to put this to music, it was something that the people of God would have sung together, but it was different. It wasn't for adoration, it was for instruction. It wasn't so much something that we would say in worship to God, it was something that we should listen in order to walk in wisdom in God's world. So let me show you what I mean. Psalm 49 begins by saying, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. 
Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boasts. Selah. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. For he will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. That opening little sentence at the beginning in all capitals in my Bible that talks about the choir master and then it says it's of the sons of Korah. This is actually part of the inspired word of God. Your translator or your publisher didn't add that uh, in there. That, that, that when Jesus read the Psalms, that those, those words uh, were there. This is the, this is the original um, part of the psalm, this little bit of introductory information. It says that this was written by uh, the sons of Korah. So I want to give us a little bit of background with regards to who the sons of Korah are. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. Before we find out who the sons of Korah are, I want to introduce you to who Korah is. The book of Numbers, that's sort of in the crusty part of your Bible, the place that we don't turn to too often. And uh, some people think that the book of Numbers is just filled with numbers and it's not very exciting, so people tend to skip over it. But as you're going to see, this, this story is pretty unique. And uh, what is about to happen in number 16 would not be called boring. Also in this book, we have a donkey that starts talking to a person and then the person starts talking back to them. So it's really, it's really not right to call the book of Numbers uh, boring. Numbers chapter 16 verse 1 says, Now Korah, the son of Izar, son of Kohath, son of Levi. So we're introduced to Korah's genealogy. Here's Korah's family tree. It said right there in verse 1, Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. So Korah was a Levite. And then look down at verse 2. It says, And they rose up before Moses. Now, if you follow the family tree here, Moses is also a descendant of Levi. And Moses' father and Korah's father were brothers. And so Moses and Korah are cousins. Uh, so they grew up together. They, you know, they, they shared a tent on family uh, reunions. They, they saw each other go through the awkwardness of puberty. and They, they stood up at one another's weddings. They, they were familiar with one another. But Korah, take a look at verse 2. They rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. So Korah had sort of rallied together the powerful and the influential people. And they came before Moses, not to encourage him and to pat him on the back, but look at what they say in verse 3. They assembled themselves together against Moses. 
and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So Korah stages a coup. An uprising, he wants to overthrow, he wants to topple Moses and his leadership, claiming that all of the people should be ruling. Well, really, Korah wanted to rule. And he was jealous, obviously envious, of the position that God had put Moses in. And they accused Moses of elevating himself. But look at how Moses responds. He's being accused of lifting himself up. Look at verse 4. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Loved ones, this is one of the greatest pictures of what true spiritual leadership looks like. True spiritual leaders do not lift themselves up. They fall on their faces before the Lord. Because here's here's what could happen. This was a bit of a power struggle. This could have been an opportunity, you know, for Moses to kind of cowboy up and say, Hey, back off, Korah. But instead, he gets down on his knees. He falls on his face. And he says, You know what? The battle belongs to the Lord. This is how I fight my battles. I don't fight my battles by by sparring with my adversaries or enemies. I'm going to trust that the Lord's going to work. To make a long story short, just skip down to verse 32 because we're not here today to study number 16. We're here to study Psalm 49. This is what happens when you ask God to fight your battles. Number 16, verse 32. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. Their households and all the people who belonged to Korah. Moses couldn't have done that, right? Moses could, he could, couldn't have spent all day digging a pit and then somehow forcing Korah to get into the... If Moses had tried to defend himself, but no, Moses chose to fall before the Lord and trust God. And this is what God did. And so if you follow the genealogy, Korah's no more... But later on in the book of Numbers, when it's giving the list, when it's giving the numbers of the, the population, it says in Numbers 26.11, it says the sons of Korah did not die. So Korah was swallowed by the earth. Some of the other members in the rebellion were swallowed by the earth. But the sons of Korah did not die. And they kind of go silent from then on. We, we hear about them again in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 9. First Chronicles chapter 9, we're going to find out how do they end up writing psalms like Psalm 49. Well, it talks about Shalom, the son of Korah, the son of Abiasaph, son of Korah. And his kinsmen of his father's house, the Korahites, sons of Korah were called the Korahites. And they were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent. That's the doorway to the tabernacle where God was Worship And their fathers had been in charge of the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. They, so the sons of Korah were like the ushers and the greeters. More like the bouncers, making sure that people were ceremonially clean before they went in to worship God at the temple. And so that was their role and responsibility, these descendants of this rebel Korah. And then we're also told they, they reemerge in 2 Chronicles. When King Jehoshaphat, there's this surprise attack. And, and, and their enemies are right at their border. They're marching on Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat calls a giant prayer meeting. It says, then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. Again, true spiritual leadership is not lifting yourself up. It's lowering yourself before the Lord. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord. 
worshiping the Lord. And then it says, the Levites, the Korathites, and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And then some of us are familiar with the story. This is where Jehoshaphat tells God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then it says that they sent the singers in front of the army when they went to go and march. They, they, didn't, they didn't put the soldiers in front. They put the singers in front. And God won. They, they didn't even have to raise their sword. God won the battle. The war was won through worship. These are the sons of Korah. So going back now to Psalm 49, with that as sort of background stowed away in our, uh, in our minds, now let's dig into a Psalm 49. The psalm really moves in three parts. If you're taking notes today, I want you to jot this down. The first part is this, the call to listen to wisdom. It's the call to listen to wisdom. That's our first point today. He says, hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. Notice how everyone needs to hear what what the sons of Korah have to say here. Verse 4, or sorry, verse 3, my mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. Notice how in verse 2 he talks about his mouth and his heart. And verse 4 he talks about his ear. Listening is really the key to wisdom. The book of Proverbs begins by saying in chapter 1 verse 5, let the wise hear an increase in understanding. How can you tell if someone is mature? How can you tell if someone is, is a wise person? Are they willing to listen and to learn? The telltale sign of immaturity is that when they're in the middle of the conversation, they act as though they're the ones who need to be sharing the information. A wise person is always humbly posturing themselves in the position of, I am ready to learn right now. So, we need to make sure that if we're going to be leaders, we must be listeners. And if we're going to follow leaders, we want to follow leaders who are listeners. And so he says that he will incline his ear to a proverb, to wisdom from God. This is someone who is listening to God. All of wisdom, really to boil it down, is to look at life from God's perspective, not from our perspective. And so he's been listening to God. Now he's going to open his mouth. At the end of verse 4, he says, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. He says, I'm going to sing a little song for you. And it's a, it's a song that, that really contains a riddle, a question. And we're going to try to find the answer together. And here's the riddle in verse 5. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Why, why should we fear when we come up against opponents who are stronger than us and wealthier than us and have more resources than us? We don't, we don't know the exact circumstance that this particular son of Korah was going through when he wrote this psalm. But you can tell he's got some adversaries, he's got some enemies but the, the issue is, is that his enemies are very wealthy. They have deep pockets. 
And so you picture them going to court, and he's coming with his little file folder with some dog-eared pieces of paper. And, and, and his adversary is walking in with a team of lawyers, you know, pulling their, their briefcases with them. And he feels like he has no chance, even though he's got the truth on his side. This guy has all of the wealth. He could bribe the judge. He could do whatever he wants. He's got all of these resources. And so the riddle that he's going to ask himself and try to solve is how should the wise respond when those who worship wealth seem to be winning? How should the wise respond when those who worship wealth seem to be winning? So there's the call to wisdom, and that's the riddle. How do we respond in the face of those who worship wealth appearing to win and be victorious over us. Well, here's, he solves the riddle really in two parts. The first one is this, the warning against trusting in wealth. The warning against trusting in wealth. When we think about uh, getting a little bit more money, getting a raise or acquiring some more assets or seeing our investments uh, yield more than what we have right now, we so often think of the perks and the benefits that would come from having access to a little bit, a little bit more money. We often only ever think of the benefits of having wealth. But the Bible gives us a balanced approach. The Bible no doubt acknowledges that it, yeah, it is beneficial to, to have access to these kinds of uh, resources. But the Bible also tells us that there are some significant disadvantages to acquiring wealth as well. And the major disadvantage is that material wealth can distract us from knowing what is truly valuable. You, you, you can buy everything you want, but you can own nothing of value. And, and wealth d- distracts us from focusing on what matters most. Look at verse 7. Truly, no man can ransom another Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. Uh, That word ransom infers the idea. But behind that word ransom is the idea of confinement. Is the idea of abduction. The idea of slavery. When when we use the word ransom. ransom, right? We, we, so often in our day and age, we only think about kidnapping. Someone has been abducted, there is a note or communication or a phone call on a burner phone saying, if you want to see your loved one again, you must pay this ransom. And so in order to set that person free, a payment must be made. But a ransom also applied to the, the, the the economy at that point in time was, was it, it included slavery as a means of getting yourself out of debt or dealing with those who have been defeated in war. Totally different from the North American uh, slave trade. But there was this, this concept of, of slavery in the ancient Near East. And if you wanted to set a slave free, not simply buy a slave from another person... 
That, that person probably ended up in slavery because they lost in a battle or because they lost all their money, had to sell themselves into slavery in order, to, in order to survive. In order to set that person free, you had to pay a ransom price. And one of the dangers of having access to wealth and an abundance of resources is it gives us the illusion of freedom when we're actually enslaved. You see, all of us have to pay a ransom. All of us have a debt that we cannot pay. And that debt has come because we as sinful human beings have turned away from God, the creator of life. And we've said things we shouldn't have said. We've done things we shouldn't have done. We've thought thoughts we shouldn't have thought. And God's judgment looms over us. And the the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so there is, this, there is this debt of sin and death that is looming over all of us. And wealth and the abundance of resources can blind us to that spiritual reality because we have material prosperity. You see, the, the truth is it's like we're all locked and caged into a six by six by six concrete cell and there's no way out and we're totally blocked off from the outside world and everything that there is to enjoy now those who are living in a six by six by six concrete cell we want to get out of there as quickly as we can we we are looking for a means to find freedom we want to pay our way out but there's a handful of us in that cell who happen to have a 65-inch QLED 4K television in their cell with a leather couch and a mini bar. And for them, even though they are equally confined, they are distracted from their present reality. And their eyes are taken away from the freedom that awaits them because they are somehow satisfied and and lulled to a sense of contentment and complacency based on what they happen to have in their cell. That is the danger of wealth. Is that we don't realize what's truly valuable. We don't realize that there is a ransom that needs to be paid. There is something that money cannot buy. And that is freedom from our slavery. Now some of you are thinking, listen, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not rich, so this doesn't really apply to me. Well, remember, going back to verse 2, this is for both low and high, rich and poor. You see, there are some people who are distracted because they have the TV and the couch and the mini bar in their cell. There's other of us who are distracted because we, we want that in our cell. Rather than trying to break free and experience the freedom that God offers to us, we are so focused on following these vain pursuits, which is just, which is just a candy-coated version of slavery. Now, you might consider yourself rich, but you listen, we always have someone to compare ourselves to, don't we? I mean, well, I'm not a millionaire, but I, well, I mean, the millionaires now can compare themselves to billionaires. And now they have this new thing called centi-billionaires, which is, means you have a hundred billion dollars to your name so there's always someone that you could be comparing yourself to in fact if your net income at the end of this year is around twenty five thousand dollars 
that puts you in the top 4% of wealth on planet Earth. That means that 96% of the people who live on this planet are looking at you the way that you look at a millionaire, or if you're a millionaire, looking at a billionaire. So we all need to be very careful. Listen, our cells, having been born in Canada or immigrated to Canada, living where we live, listen, our cells are full, full of stuff which can distract us from the reality of the ransom payment that needs to be paid. Distracts us from what's truly valuable. Look at verse 8. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. No one can pay it. Verse 9, that he should live forever and never see the pit. Never see the pit. Verses 10 to 14 now describe the the pit, the reality that all of us are going to die. And that's because we all have this debt of death looming over us because of our sin and rebellion against God. Verse 10 it says, For he sees that even the wise die, and the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. So listen, death does not discriminate. Death is all-inclusive. Everyone's welcome to die. Everybody gets to die. Come on in. Come on into the pit. It says the wise and the foolish. It even says the stupid. You're not allowed to say stupid in our house unless you're quoting Psalm 49. Verse 11. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names. You might have come here today from Georgetown. Named after George Kennedy who opened a a mill in what was then just sort of a a rural little village. Hasn't really come that far from that point. But it's, it's named Georgetown. He was a wealthy man who had a business and the place is named after him. Right now we're in Peel region named after Robert Peel who was the son of a a wealthy textile merchant in the UK and eventually became the prime minister. This this land, this area where we are right now is named after a wealthy person. You could drive down to watch the Blue Jays lose again at the Rogers Center which again is named after Ted Rogers who who founded that telecom business. You see, they they have these lands named after themselves, verse 11. They called lands by their own names. But look at the beginning of verse 11. Their graves are their homes forever. No matter how big of a city they founded, no matter how large their business or enterprise is, no matter how much real estate is named after them, how much they own, everyone at the end of the day ends up with the same size of real estate. An eight foot by two and a half foot burial plot. You see, death is this great leveler. Everyone's included. It happens to everyone. Verse 12, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Pomp just means significance and importance and that, that, that won't remain. You see, death is the great leveler across humankind, but death is also the great leveler across the whole animal kingdom. At the end of the day, we all end up buried in the ground, just like your dog, 
just like the mice in your drywall, just like, just like every creature, we all have the same fate. And it's wisdom, it's wisdom to understand our mortality, to not be held in awe or to be anxious or worried because of someone else's prosperity. Look at verse 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. This is the path. The path that they're on leads to the grave. But even though they're on the path to the grave, it says, and yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Even though we know that everyone who acquires all of this wealth and this importance and this notoriety and this fame, even though they end up along the grave, there's this whole group of followers who are cheering them on and wishing that they were in their place. There are those who come after, who are following. And then it says, Selah. A Selah is a Hebrew word. It's not translated into English. It's kind of difficult to translate. The closest translation is to lift up. It means to, you know, lift up your hands from your instrument. So it's sort of like a, a rest in, in music. It could mean lift up your voices in a, in a key change or to invite the congregation to, uh, to stand at this point in the song. But sail is really an opportunity to pause and to think. To think about the path. And what path are you on? Verse 13 says it's the path of those who have foolish confidence. Foolish confidence. Going back to verse 6. This is the path of those who trust in riches. This is not an indictment against all those who happen to be wealthy. This is a warning towards those who trust in that wealth. What does it mean to trust in wealth? Well, it really boils down to three categories. Satisfaction, security, and significance. We, we trust in wealth when we seek to find satisfaction from our wealth. If I could just live there, if I could just buy that, if I could just experience that, if I could only pay for these things, then I would feel satisfied. But listen, that's just the path that leads to the grave. You'll end up feeling empty in the end. Security, if I could just make a little bit more money, if I could just have a, a little bit more in my, in my savings, if, if I could just get that promotion and have a little bit more cash flow, then I would feel secure. But it's never enough. Or significance. If I could just do something with my life or build up a company or, or get that corner office, then people will know who I am and what I'm about and, and how significant my life is. Satisfaction, security, significance, these are things that all of us are looking for. So many of us are trying to find it in wealth and riches. But those things can only be found in God. Only God can truly satisfy that longing in our soul. Only God can truly give us security in this life and the next. Only God can give us significance, not because of something we've done, but what God has done in helping make us sons and daughters of the King. So it's time now for us to take a Selah. We've been warned about this path. 
And maybe we're the ones leading the way on the path. Maybe we are abundantly wealthy. Maybe we're the ones who are approving of their boast, who are following after, wishing that we were like that. Just take a minute right now. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your own heart. Are you trusting in riches? Are you someone who is placing foolish confidence in something that cannot give you, think along these lines, satisfaction, security, and significance? Allow the Spirit to speak to you right now. This is a Salem moment. This is an opportunity to pause and to reflect. What path are you on? In verse 14, it says, like, like sheep, they are appointed to Sheol. They're going along this path like sheep. And then it says, death shall be their shepherd. This is totally contra to, to Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. This says death will be their shepherd. In Psalm 23, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm going through it. This shepherd leads you to the valley of the shadow of death. You don't get through it. It doesn't end like Psalm 23 says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. At the, end, the middle of verse 14 says, it says that the upright shall rule over them in the morning. The morning, at the, it, there's, there's a new day coming. Jesus talks about the great reversal. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. It says there form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. It's, a, it's pretty bleak at this point. I mean, it's, it's dark. The shepherd of death leading to this pit of, of destruction. Sheol, by the way, means grave, the, the, the place where the dead go. They're, they're being consumed in this place. It's a very dark and bleak description here then everything changes in verse 15 with two simple words but God I mean that, that, just, that just changes everything I mean we see this all over all over uh, the Bible you know I was despairing of life itself and even if my heart might fail Psalm 73:26 even if my heart might fail but God but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever Ephesians 2 we were following the course of this world we were children of wrath but God being rich in mercy Romans 5 no one would ever die for a righteous person but God shows his life or his love for that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God, but God, but God. I've got a number of but God moments in my life. How about you? Verse 15 says, but God will ransom my soul. There is a ransom. There is a price that we cannot pay. But he says God will pay it. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. For he will receive me. Selah. The third and final point is this, the security of God's ransom. The security of God's ransom. We have a debt that we cannot pay. We are slaves and we cannot set ourselves free. But the psalmist here confidently states that God can set us free and that God will set us free. And in light of that reality, that confidence that the psalmist has, then he returns back to his original question. 
Remember in verse 5, he said, why should I fear? Why should I fear all these wealthy people? Look at verse 15. Be not afraid. Because God will ransom us if, if you trust in God rather than trusting in wealth. It says, be not afraid when a man becomes rich. When the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. He will carry nothing away. Have you ever been to a, to a cemetery? Have you ever visited the grave of a, of a loved one? You know, we see a lot of things being placed near the, near the grave, near the tombstone of, of those who, uh, who have passed away. We, we see flowers. Sometimes we see uh, notes, uh, poems being laid at the grave. You know what you never see? You know what you never see at a gravestone? You never see someone from UPS dropping off an Amazon Prime box and scanning it. Because you, 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 you can't take anything with you. One preacher says, you never see a hearse pulling a trailer. You can't take anything with you. Money is not allowed in the afterlife. It's like peanut butter at a public school. You ain't getting in. You can take nothing with you, verse 17. When he dies, he will carry nothing away. This is wisdom, to live this way, to think this way, to know what's truly valuable. Verse 17, his glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. So often we think, we so often speak this way. Went about our wealth. Oh, it's a blessing. God has blessed me. Sometimes we think it's a blessing, but it's not. Sometimes we think that our greatest challenge in life will be a time of, 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 of spiritual, or sorry, of, of financial trouble. That that will be the hardest time in our life. Sometimes the most difficult challenge in our life will not be financial trouble, but financial success. It's not always a blessing. Because it can distract us from what matters most. Verse 18, for though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And although you get praise, there's all the followers. Though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Death is the great equalizer. Death does not discriminate. Verse 20 and verse 12, perishing with the beast. That's kind of like the chorus of the song. Man without understanding will like the beasts perish, but not every man and woman. Those who refuse to trust in wealth but choose to trust in God will have a totally different situation. Death is not the end. Death is just the beginning. Death is not, is not how we make our payment and eternity apart from God in hell. Death is not how, our, how we make our payment, but death is, is a, a payment that has already been made. Verse 15 says, God will ransom my soul. And we can say with the psalmist, God can ransom my soul and God will ransom my soul. He has the resources to be able to pay it and he has the character and the faithfulness that we can be confident that he will do it. But we can go beyond what the psalmist says here in Psalm 49. It's not just that we believe that God can pay it and that God will pay it. We believe as followers of Jesus Christ that God has paid it. Jesus said in Mark 10... 
45. Take a look at Mark 10, 45 here. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom. He came to give his life. He came to die the death that we deserve. He was laid in the tomb where we belong. He was put on the cross where we deserve to go to be punished for our sin. He paid the price as a ransom. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for us all. There's only one God, and there's only one way to God. We cannot earn our way to God. That's like us trying to buy our way to heaven. You can't do it. And there is one God, and there is one mediator. The man Christ Jesus, who was fully God and fully human. So he was human and was able to pay the price that all of us as humans need to pay. But he was fully God, which meant that he was infinite, so that he could pay that infinite debt that all of us owed. And he became our mediator to pay the ransom that all of us deserve. And so it's only fitting then that we close our our service this morning with taking in our hands a cup and taking in our hands some bread and remembering the ransom price that was paid to purchase our slavery, to purchase our freedom from slavery. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that although we were slaves to sin, you have made a way to set us free by sending your son Jesus Christ to suffer and die on our behalf. God, I pray if there is anyone here who does not yet know you, who is still living in that slavery, God, I pray that they would know that salvation is available to them right here and right now, and that they would turn and choose to believe in you, believe that you paid the price. So God, I pray that you would be present with us right now as we take these symbols in our hands, God, that you would speak to our hearts and that we would rejoice and celebrate in all that you have done. In Jesus' name.